Okay, grab your Bibles or devices. And I said last week that having a device, uh, like a Bible, the Bible app or another that gets you to multiple English translations, uh, can be helpful as we look at the conclusion of the gospel according to Mark. If you're newer with us, we began this journey October 2020. And we're never in a rush to get through, and we've done some other things throughout, but certainly when it comes to exploring the life of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of His, we're in no hurry. That's all of our life. Uh, but we tend to take our time going through the Scriptures in this way as a, a regular rhythm, never having it fully scripted to where we will end. And I'm still uncertain, and some of you are wondering, didn't we end this journey two weeks ago? Yes, I, I think that's true. These are footnote messages which fits if you look into Mark 16, probably in the version you're holding, or if you're in an app and you go to a couple different versions. At the end of verse 8 in Mark chapter 16, there's likely a break with a new heading, perhaps a note or an asterisk with some following words, uh, maybe called verses in brackets. If you've read through the Gospels before, and I would guess that many of, many of you have, You've seen this before. You've come to places like this in the Scripture. It happens also in John uh, chapter 8, where there's some notes or these words are set apart uh, a little bit differently than the rest of the flow of, of what we would consider the Scriptures. Well, that raises some questions. If Mark ends after verse 8... It raises a lot of questions for us, and I looked at that last week. I invited us to this abrupt ending that would make us ask the question, what, what happened next, and therefore, what happens next? Which I think is actually the question that Mark wants us to ask. And really, as we wrap up this gospel, we're reminded that the gospel never ends, that it continues, it's meant to continue and to advance, that we're meant to be a part of that story. And so we see that here in this in this chapter, even if it ends in an unsettled kind of way. And isn't that appropriate? An upside down, not what we expected kind of way. And that's been a lot of Mark. He shows us Jesus and the upside down kingdom in unexpected ways. I said last week that I might open a can of worms, and I'm hesitant a little bit to do that still, but I think I'm going to. Um, it raises more questions maybe than answers, but I do that often. It possibly will raise questions that you hadn't previously asked, and that's my hesitancy, and, and wondering how this is possibly a sermon. And to be clear, it probably is more of a teaching, but I believe with a message at the end if you hang in there. So brace yourself. The final chapter of Mark is before us, and, and we read these extended verses last week, so I won't read them again, but if you're a guest with us or you missed last week, you can kind of scan through uh, probably what is in your text as Mark 16, verse 9 through verse 20. Likely it's in brackets or under a different heading. Uh, the note in your scripture probably says longer ending of Mark or alternate ending. And so that raises some questions. Unless you're reading from the original King James. Show of hands? No, I won't make you do that. Uh, but if you are, you won't see any note or brackets. The flow of the text will just continue to Mark 16, verse 20, which is interesting. If you have a New Revised Standard Version, show of hands? No, okay, we just don't want to divide over translations here. Uh, but if you do, it, it will, it will ha actually add two sentences in between Mark 16, 8, and the beginning of 9. It'll probably label it shorter ending of Mark, 
And these are unversed sentences, but they read like this. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself appeared to them and sent them out by means of them from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. I think the NRSV is, is the most uh, common version to include that, but others do as well. That's why I said if you had a device and you're clicking to some other translations, you see some different words, these alternate endings, which raises the question, why are they here? What do these notes mean? And are they scripture? And we should ask and try to clarify, what do we mean even by asking that? Are they scripture? Are they accurate? Are they authoritative? Are they helpful for us or other? Why are they included in some English translations and not others? Why are they included in different ways with different notations? Why would the King James Version not put any notation whatsoever? Lots of questions. I said, I, I, just to begin down this path, feels like opening a can of worms. To not do so uh, feels not appropriate to the way we've journeyed through the entire text to this point. I think this can of worms is probably Asian jumping worms. Are you familiar with this invasive species that is now spreading across the United States? I hesitate to ask you to Google that at this point. These are hyperactive, small brownish worms. They thrash about and they are disrupting the ecosystem wherever they tend to migrate toward. Truly an invasive species. They, they can jump multiple inches by flicking their bodies into the air. So if you open that can of worms, they're going to be all over the room. And that's what it feels like. And perhaps, and you can Google it later, perhaps that's the way you've always treated the end of Mark when you get there and you see notes like this or brackets. Close the lid, shut the book, and move on. Just let it be. Leave it alone. Is it possible to crack the lid and take a peek? Perhaps. It's not really in my nature to avoid controversial topics, but I'm also not a fan of invasive worms either. Okay, the earliest manuscripts of Mark come from sometime in the 4th century. Now, this is important for us to understand. We have no original autographs, they'd be called, of the scriptures. Think about the ancient form that they were written in. These are thousands of year old texts. What we do have is copies, to be clear. Copies of copies of copies is likely the original, which would still make the original copies we have of the gospel according to Mark 1,700 years. Pretty amazing that they have been preserved that long, but they are copies nonetheless. The process of copying important documents was a, was a significant profession at the time. How else would you preserve accurately the intent of an author in an important document unless you had professional scribes to do that work? Uh, it, within Judaism, transferring what had first been oral tradition into their written scriptures was such an extreme process. There's record that if a copyist if the, if the ink of the copy of two Hebrew characters were to touch or bleed together on the document, the whole document would be scratched and begun again. There's pro the process to copying was extremely intense and important, and therefore, we have high confidence in, in these scriptures being what the original author put forward for us. This is the field of textual criticism, not to bore you, perhaps too late, uh, but the scholarship is robust. And the synchrony 
of the Markan documents is, is amazing, making it one of, one of the most trustworthy ancient documents in history by the field of textual criticism. Okay, to put it another way, and maybe other words, we can be confident that we have what the author, who we call Mark, wrote from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 8. The synchrony of the copies is, 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 is pretty incredible. We may not have all that Mark wrote. And if verses 9 through 20 are included, we may have more than what Mark wrote in the Bibles that you likely hold in your hands. That alone does not mean that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not Scripture or authoritative. However, when those verses were likely written may exclude it from the, the same standards that the church applied to the early Scriptures, likely because it was written almost a century after Mark wrote. Almost all scholarship now agrees today that these words were not written by the same author that wrote the rest of the story. Thus, the brackets and the note and the question that comes to all of us, the church, uh, to look at carefully. Now, there's really good reasons to believe this. I mentioned a couple of them last week. Those earliest manuscripts that we have that are the most confident ones we have did not include verses 9 through 20. References to this section, 9 through 20, don't appear until a century after Mark was written and distributed, while references to the rest of Mark come within decades of when it was through external writings of the church fathers and the early church. You'll notice, even in English, as you, as you read and you become familiar with, with Mark, that the style and the language is very different for the, this next and last section of Mark than it was for the rest. And in our English translations from the Greek, the translators try to smooth that out a little bit. But if you were to read and study the Greek, it's pretty jarringly different. We're, many words in this small section that Mark doesn't use anywhere else in the letter, which is not in itself a reason, but does create some questions and some wonderings. Also, we saw the flow of the narrative is very different. It describes the resurrection event very differently than it just previously happened, which makes us wonder why Mark would do that. It also raises many questions that Mark chose not to address through the rest of his letter. So all of these reasons make scholars and, and even casual readers who study it question and wonder. And, and that's okay. It's okay to have those questions. If Mark intended to end his letter at the end of verse 8, it is an abrupt ending. Because we will ask the question, so why are these other words included if, if they're unlikely to have been from Mark's pen himself? Why would they even be here? To be clear, most scholars believe it was added by not just one copyist, but a, a group of editors, you might call them, or copiers, a community to say, we're going to add something to give clarity to this message, done, done with, with helpful intention to the church. Because of the abrupt ending of verse 8. We have a couple of options if regarding these endings. One, and some, some believe this, Mark intended to write more, was in the process of writing his letter, had not finished, and, and himself was abruptly 
stopped writing for whatever reason and never came back to the letter. And so what was then passed on was what we have through Mark 16, verse 8. That's completely hypothetical, but it's possible. And if that was possible and someone happened to know Mark or, or believe they could add in, fill in an ending that should have been there, they did their best and probably in community did their best to add an ending for clarity as this message was going out and being distributed throughout the world at their time. Second option, Mark did write more, and that portion of Scripture has been lost in antiquity. Often these copies were written on scrolls that would be rolled out and would be sent that way and then flattened out and rolled out and read and then rolled back up. And so the ends of that parchment were the most susceptible to damage, to fraying, to being torn. And it's possible, some scholars believe, that Mark must have written more because of the abrupt ending, and that's been, it's been lost as it first was distributed. It was lost. And so the church came along and said, we're going to do our best to fill in what that ending would have been <laughs> using the other gospel accounts and trying to make it helpful for the church. Again, this is just speculation. There's a little bit more merit to it. If you look at the Greek, the final word in verse 18 is a conjunction. It's the word gar in Greek, for, because. While that's grammatically incorrect in English, it's not impossible to work in Greek. It just, Mark doesn't do that anywhere else in the letter, kind of end a statement with a conjunction. It would make it one of the only documents in ancient history in Greek to end with a conjunction. It's just, it just was a very, very uncommon practice, which again makes scholars who study this kind of thing, textual criticism, Say, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem right. There must be something that has been lost here. Let's fill in the ending. And that's why we have these words or verses in brackets, because they, they don't seem to fit with the original intention of Mark. If you look at the very beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with the word beginning. It doesn't start with a, uh, an article, the, even though our English translators add the, because that makes a little more sense. It literally would say this in the Greek, beginning the gospel, Jesus Christ. We know Greek is a little bit different than, than English, but it, it's a very abrupt beginning. There's also, just in the story, there's no preface, there's no birth narrative, Right? There's, there's, it's just an immediate jump right into the text. So some scholars have said, see, this original scroll that it was written on has been torn on both ends. We've lost the original beginning and the ending of this gospel. Hypothetical suggestion. But more scholars hold to that than the previous that Mark intended to write more but did not. And so others came along to add in. But we found that Mark's style throughout the gospel is abrupt, direct, to the point urgent. He has this urgent message. And that the, our third option, the one that I would probably hold most strongly today, is that we actually do have exactly what Mark intended to write. And he did it intentionally for us to ask the questions of, what's the rest of the story? There must be more. What happens next? And to put ourselves in the story. Because Mark has been asking the reader throughout, will you see Will you believe? Will you follow Jesus? Will you become one of his disciples? Will you believe and then proclaim the message? Because if it ends with a conjunction, and you, I mean, it was a scroll, but for us, you flip the page to look for the rest of the story, and it's not there. What, hap what happens next? Did the women proclaim the message? They must have gone and proclaimed the message because we have Mark. 
But what happened? What, was that, what made them change their mind? They went away from the tomb trembling and fearful and didn't say anything. Eventually, they must have proclaimed. All sorts of questions come up for us, and it's actually a brilliant technique of an author to end so abruptly that you say, there must be more to the story. It's unresolved. It's unsettling. We have to resolve it. We have to end to write the story, not just one that makes us feel good, but one that in, uh, invites us to walk into the story and say, will I believe or will I stare blankly into an empty tomb? Will I walk away and remain silent or will I go find Jesus on the road? He's on the move. His kingdom's expanding. There's a message that not, not only that must, must be proclaimed, it changes everything. The king of the kingdom has come and he has conquered death. He is risen and he's now moving into the world. Will we proclaim that message? I believe that's a compelling place to end Mark's gospel and for us to be invited into that story. And I'm still compelled by that. While there are questions, I guess we're, held, we're, we're stuck holding this can of worms thanks to these editors or copyists who added some more to the letter for what they intended to be helpful, I believe, but actually was, would have been contradictory to Mark's message if, if he did intend to end it in 16 verse 8. Now, I see you with your body language and your eyes urging this question. What does this matter, Ben? What, what possibly of importance could this be? And on one hand, you're absolutely right. In, in the scheme of the gospel, what, what does this truly change? If we can understand that likely these words were added in with, with the hope of being helpful from the church, and that's why we have them in brackets, it doesn't confuse anything. Now, that does raise some questions that we wonder about, about the timeline, the time frame of the resurrection event, about these miracles that showed up, about potentially drinking poison and handling snakes, some questions that maybe would be better not to have been raised. So on one hand, I guess it doesn't really matter unless these words contradict a message or are, are sharing something that the author would not have supported. And I don't believe that that would be true. If you read the rest of the Gospels and you read the account of Acts, these verses fit in with what did happen in those days following Jesus with the ongoing signs. All of the miracles proclaimed, except for the handling of snakes and drinking of poison, happened in the time of Acts. Those don't seem all that miraculous. In fact, Paul himself was bitten by a viper on the island of Malta and survived it. Well, venom, poison entered his body and he survived it as a sign of God's provision and protection and healing. Nowhere else in, in the gospel accounts or in Acts are we told, never are we told, to handle serpents, poisonous serpents, or to drink poison. We also have to be clear that this ending of Mark doesn't prescribe it either. This is a hermeneutic that is very important for assessing and trusting Scripture. Will we take Scripture as prescription when it's simply description? This is a descriptive event. These things will happen at times for his disciples. This does not mean it must happen to be a disciple. Many have taken these verses, the really ultimately extreme or fringe, probably Pentecostal or charismatic groups, and you can do some study on this through the, especially the, the mid-1900s. There were traveling 
preachers handling poisonous snakes and, and potentially drinking poison in front of audiences to gather a crowd. They were hawks and peddlers of the gospel. Maybe some genuine believers who misunderstood Scripture. So that can be, that can be problematic. But in general, if these words do not refute the message and fit within the greater context of the gospel, then what's the big deal? Yeah, that's on one hand. On the other hand, the can of worms is the early church affirmed these words for centuries and treated them as, as authoritative as the rest of Scripture. The process of what is considered authoritative in Scripture was a more fluid thing for the early church than maybe what we tend to hold or have been taught. This flings open the can of worms on our theory or our doctrine of biblical inerrancy. But to be clear, the early church and ancient Judaism did not hold to a doctrine of biblical inerrancy. That would have been and that just would have been an unusual thing to, to think or to say. They wouldn't even have understood what was meant by that, by that term. But we, this side of 1978, have been taught well this doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Coming from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, 1978. But previous to that decision to believe that all of Scripture is, is inerrant as originally given trying to elevate the authority of Scripture, and rightfully so, with a desire to elevate the, the Scripture, it, it contradicted the way that our ancient brothers and sisters believed in authoritative, inspired texts. The early church believed it was fully okay to add in clarity to the story, to edify the church in those early years following the original writings of the Scripture. The can of worms is, well, what, is that, what then does that mean? Were there earlier edits? What, what does that mean about divine inspiration of a text? And all sorts of questions that come up. So unless we shut the book and move on as if nothing was seen here, it starts us down a process of textual criticism and scholarship that is probably more than we really want to enter into. I kid you not, when I was writing some of these lines on Thursday afternoon, I saw movement on my arm. I looked down and there was an inchworm crawling up my arm, just to complete the metaphor. Uh, there's scholarly questions and then there's practical ones. And some of you are desire to be more scholarly and consider yourself to pursue a theological education. Some of you have. But the practical ones probably come to all of us. If there's confusion in this text, how come? Is God not the author of all? Yes, I truly believe that. Could it not have been more clear? Could God not have governed this process better and answered our questions more more completely? Why would he allow such uncertainty to enter into this so important story? Either God was unable to work through his human authors to produce a consistent text, which is a God I refuse to believe in. 
and is not presented throughout the scriptures. He is ambivalent, does not care what ultimately ends up into this book we call the Bible. It's just another way of revelation, which is also a God I don't believe in. Or he is intentional and purposeful to conceal some matters, to leave his people wondering, questioning, wrestling, and ultimately having to walk by faith, to experience a living God. He says in Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Apply yourself, kings and queens, as royalty, sons and daughters of the king. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but to search it out is the glory of each one of us. If God's intention is to conceal at times in order that our response would be to search and to seek that we would know and that we would understand more and more, and that's to our glory, then it is a gift. Also, it leads to greater humility to come to God's scriptures, this incredible text, to recognize it is probably more complex, and I say more beautiful because of that, than we ever imagined and probably want to admit, puts us into a place of humility. To say, I do not know. I do not fully know. To have to walk that line. For pastors to have to stand before people who have spent thousands of hours studying from original text to certain degrees to this text and to say, and my conclusion is, I don't fully know. And then hopefully, a good pastor points to the one true pastor and says, but there is a God who does. And there's a God who is good. And he's inviting us to believe in him and walk by faith. To never give up seeking and searching because it is glorious to do so. But this God is bigger than you could ever imagine. And we must walk by faith in him. The Apostle Paul said something similar, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Now, mirrors in that day were very different than our mirrors today, so it would make sense. All, all images would be blurry to a degree. That was the shiniest they could make them. But one day we will see face to face. For now we know in part, but one day we will know fully. This unknowing and unsettling leads to longing and leads to hope of what will come. We don't like things to be unresolved, do we? We want to resolve them now. We want to have the answers. We want it black and white. No fuzziness, no gray areas, no uncertainties. With God that is true, with man that is not. We are often left to be unsettled intentionally that we would search and that we would seek, that we would long to see and to know what is good, even glorious. We would walk in humility 
admitting that I don't truly know. I don't have all the answers. If we are to truly love one another, we must be humble. And that we must walk by faith that God is good, that God knows, and we're invited to trust him. This is what Mark has asked us all along. Will we see? Will we believe? Will we follow? Will we go on the journey of living by faith and trusting in Jesus? By the way, I put in my notes a number of resources because I'm not, again, I'm raising probably more questions than answering, maybe questions you've never asked before. And I don't want to leave you hanging, but in one message like this, I can't articulate more fully this robust field of textual criticism, of understanding the Bible as a whole, as a collection, how some versions are slightly different than others, how the Catholic Bible includes a number of books that they would consider equal with, with authoritative Scripture, but the Protestant Bible doesn't include some of those books. There's a huge field here, and it's a good journey. Some of you will be invited to go on that. Others will more easily be able to screw the lid back on the can and walk by faith. And, and I don't want to unsettle where we're not meant to be unsettled because I think God's word does rightly unsettle us at times. Here's, here's six books uh, going from my frame of probably more mainstream evangelical to a little bit more liberal. So take that as you want. Like, do you want to dip your toe in or plunge all the way in or walk that journey? But I've read through these resources. I have some things to say about them, both in agreement and then questioning. Uh, but it's a good journey. I'm going to list them here because this is being recorded. And you can go back and get that list or I can hand it to you uh, as we conclude the service today. From more evangelical, I think, to more liberal. How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Reading While Black by Pastor Esau McCauley. And if you want a book to work on for a couple of years, The New Testament in Its World by N.T. Wright. A more simple approach and accessible, I believe, inspired by Rachel Held Evans. Kind of moving down this path, I think, The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. And then maybe How the Bible Actually Works by Peter Enns. I'm not going to repeat those because it's being recorded, but if those are interesting to you at all to pursue, or if you would just like to grab a cup of coffee or seven, I'd be happy to. Okay, thanks for hanging in there. I think the message for us as we engage a more complex and beautiful story than maybe we first were taught, that is a lifetime of journey of faith and pursuit and knowing that we would see, that we would know, that we would follow. I quoted from Richard Bur Burridge, a priest in the Church of England last week, who says this, Mark's story of Jesus becomes the story of his followers, and their story becomes the story of us, the readers. Will we follow or will we desert? Will we believe or will we misunderstand? Will we see him again on the roads, in the fields? I'm adding that part. Or remain staring blindly into an empty tomb? I think the unresolved things refine us. I think they're purposeful in that. Where we are unresolved and unsettled and uncertain, leading to wrestling in proximity with God is a good thing, but it also leads to refinement in the things that are clear, that are direct, that are straightforward in our call to be followers of Jesus, to live life for him, loving God and loving one another, living lives of hospitality, of generosity, of mercy, of goodness, of faithfulness,
of sacrifice, benevolent for those that need help, eyes open for the historically marginalized and hurting and the poor in our community. There are straightforward things that we are called to and we can live in in a robust manner because they are clear in the way of Jesus. While we hold in tension the uncertain things, while we wait in some ways to the one day, someday we will see clearly. We will be able to ask our questions and receive more fully the answers. You know, wherever and however Mark's gospel ends, it seems to be appropriate. and It's an upside-down, unexpected kind of way, leading us to walk by faith, forever praying, as we've prayed throughout this series. I believe, Jesus. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Those aren't contradictory statements. They represent a heart of faith, I believe. This was from the father in Mark 9, who is desperate for the healing of his son, Do you believe I am able to do that? I believe. Help me in my unbelief. A good prayer. And whoever wrote the final words of this book, be it one individual or a group of copyists, they give us something to cling to, to pray for, and to believe. They are right in their final words. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word. It's his gospel, not ours. It's God's story, not ours. We're never called to be forceful with the message, but to be faithful. That's our desire. Sometimes choosing to believe the unbelievable and inviting others to do the same. That we have a God who came into this world to dwell with us, to be with us, to pursue love and redeem his people. One who went to the grave, went through the cross on our behalf and is risen, has conquered death. We have an unbelievable message. We believe God. Help us in our unbelief. We live by faith, not by sight. Lord, work with us and be with us. Confirm your word and your will be done. Let's pray. Father God, we commit all of this to you. And in some ways, I feel like I'm committing these past two years with so much unsettled and uncertain, with questions abounding. And we long for, I long for, clarity, truth, wisdom, things to be without dispute, no more division. And yet you, with your wisdom, your goodness, and your faithfulness, have seemingly allowed the uncertainty to draw us in with these deep questions, to give us the opportunity to walk by faith and to come to know you, the living God, who makes his word living and active, your spirit with humanity. And for that, we thank you, because it's who you are. Would you grow each of our faith Grow our hope in the midst of so much that is uncertain. Let us be wary of those that claim to have it all figured out. That's not a God we want to worship. We worship you because we cannot fully grasp you. In some ways, we're just beginning. 
What an amazing invitation and journey to know the living and active God of all creation who makes himself known as good and as father and who calls his children to himself. May we draw near to you again today as we walk by faith. All of us, may it be, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In the name of God the Father, and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.